Hello, I'm PJ Matthews from the School of English, Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Welcome to this UCD ScholarCast. The following lecture in the series, The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance, will be given by Paige Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds lectures in the Department of English, Holy Cross College, Massachusetts. Hollywood and Contemporary Irish Drama Shortly after winning the 2007 Man Booker Prize for her novel The Gathering, the Irish author Anne Enright explained to a BBC Radio 4 Today audience that when people pick up a book, they may want something happy that will cheer them up. In that case, they really shouldn't pick up my book. It's the intellectual equivalent of a Hollywood weepy. The phrase, the intellectual equivalent of a Hollywood weepy, was immediately adopted by those seeking to characterize The Gathering, a novel that chronicles the attempts of its affluent Dublin heroine to grapple with her family history, her brother's suicide, and her faltering marriage. By likening her novel to a Hollywood melodrama for smart people, Enright's shorthand blithely breached commonly assumed divides between text and film, elite art and popular entertainments, Irish and American cultures. The casual nature of her characterization suggests an easy converse in the 21st century between the high culture of Irish literature and the low culture of popular Hollywood melodrama. In recent decades, the clear distinctions between high art and popular art have been challenged by innumerable literary and cultural critics. This divide, once presumed to separate high and low cultures, has been bridged by figures in the Irish theater since the start of the 20th century even in that bastion of corrupted popular art, Hollywood. Beginning in the early 20th century, when D.W. Griffith and his band of actors first began making films in the small California suburb, Hollywood has been the hub of commercial film production. One where key figures in 20th and 21st century Irish dramatic history, including Liam O'Flaherty, Michal McLeamore, Stephen Ray, and Conor McPherson, have worked with varying degrees of success. I'd like to examine how contemporary Irish playwrights depict Hollywood, and in particular, how they engage the cinematic and narrative patterns we've come to associate with American movies. Donal O'Kelly's Catalpa, Martin McDonough's The Cripple Finish Man, Mari Jones's Stones in His Pockets, and Geraldine Hughes's Belfast Blues depict the effects of Hollywood on their characters and their society. All four plays depict Irish and Northern Irish characters entangled in the film industry, men and women who trek between the States and Ireland and whose lives are indelibly marked by their direct association with Hollywood. By purveying a tantalizing version of the American dream, Hollywood promises the aspiring Irish screenwriters and actors in these plays creative and financial opportunities unavailable in their homeland. Many of these characters, however, are thwarted in their pursuit of big screen success. Consequently, they make evident the risks and costs of consenting to the Hollywood myth, and they expose its limits, in part by talking back to a film industry that fails them. Nonetheless, contemporary Irish plays maintain a surprising optimism about Hollywood, an optimism that suggests the American film industry provides these playwrights a productive tool for exploring Irish identity and history in a moment of rapidly changing, globalized popular culture. A growing body of scholarship examines how mass culture, and in particular American mass culture, 
represents Ireland and Irish identity to local and global audiences. For instance, in Screening Ireland, Lance Pettit recounts how American, British, and Irish film and television have conveyed their interpretations of Irishness to audiences, while the 2006 collection, The Irish in Us, examines cultural forms ranging from television shows, country music, and Hollywood film to advance the claim that Americans have embraced Irishness because it allows them ethnicity without abandoning the benefits of whiteness. We have also been treated to incisive readings of now-canonical films directed by Americans, like Robert Flaherty's Man of Aaron and John Ford's The Quiet Man. In the hands of literary, film, and cultural critics, these films become devices exposing American perceptions of an Irish understanding of the land, imperialism, or regionalism. There are, of course, notable exceptions to this critical trend of reading Ireland through American eyes. Elizabeth Cullingford, for instance, has studied how Irish writers, including Roddy Doyle, Patrick McCabe, and Tom Murphy, employ tropes derived from the Hollywood Western to critique imperialism, a point also voiced by Fenton O'Toole and Luke Gibbons in their observations about the intermingling of Irish and American frontier cultures. Rather than explore further how American mass culture represents Ireland and Irishness, I'd like to turn the tables and examine how these plays, as well as Jones's The Girls in the Big Picture and Darren Thornton's Wonderkin, portray American popular culture, and in particular, how they depict Hollywood and classical narrative film. Told from the point of view of Matthew Kidd, a failed screenwriter, Donal O'Kelly's one-man play Catalpa recounts an actual historical event, the 1876 rescue of six Fenian prisoners from Fremantle, a British penal colony in Australia. This successful mission, led by the American whaling ship captain George Anthony and organized by John DeVoy's Fenians, was celebrated with great fervor by Irish Americans. In contrast, Kidd's pitch of his film depicting the Catalpa rescue to those Tinseltown know-it-all morons from Hollywood is a dismal failure, due in part to his inability to articulate his vision, to physically control his hostility, and to respond nonchalantly to the producers during their meeting. From the outset, Hollywood stymies the Irish writer, driving him to self-recrimination rather than self-realization. As Kidd laments, foolish man, foolish, foolish man, what I could have said was, what I should have said was, why didn't I just show them the pictures in my head? Why didn't I? Upon expressing this regret, Kidd takes on the posture of a walking seabird, and the stage lighting signals the change from the sad gray world of Matthew's bedsit to the vibrant technicolor world of his imagination. Kidd then performs over 20 different speaking roles, as well as providing various sound effects to convey the planning and execution of the Fremantle Rescue, the Sea Journey to Australia, and the Return to America. Throughout its two acts, the play engages familiar Hollywood narrative tropes. George Anthony is portrayed as the poor but noble upstart who marries above his social station and through heroics must prove his suitability as spouse to the beautiful Greta and father to their young daughter Pearl. The narrative climax captures the narrow escape of George, his loyal crew, and the rescued prisoners from the British fleet that outmatches them in material resources, but not in spirit. 
And the neat conclusion segues from the ticker tape parade welcoming the returning Finian heroes to New York to George, who has gallantly refused public glory for domestic contentment, returning to the wife and child who faithfully await his return. In Catalpa, O'Kelly masterfully uses language to depict images recognizable from classical Hollywood cinema. For instance, as narrator, Kidd describes the opening scene of the film from the point of view of a seabird that flies over the 19th century Massachusetts seacoast, providing a sweeping point of view shot that pans over the choppy, choppy waves, green-brown, tossing, toss-schloss waves, and the 19th century whaling town, New Bedford, Massachusetts, to establish the setting of the film. The narrator then shifts from the bird's view to an omniscient perspective in order to zoom in close to an upstairs window in the primitive office of clerks where a young man observes you, the seabird, through a telescope, Kevin Costner or Tom Cruise. You flap your wings and rise, but George Anthony, for it is he, keeps the telescope trained on the dark gray horizon. At this moment, the point of view shifts again and becomes aligned with that of George, the film's protagonist. This opening scene employs the onomatopoeia and sound symbolism of poetry to recreate the sea waves or the bird's flapping wings, as well as playing with syntax and employing repetition, rhyme, and rhythm to convey the visual world of kids' film. Catalpa is Hollywood ekphrasis, a poetic and dramatic description of a film where sound and sense work together to create an image in the audience's mind. But those poetic devices are tightly bound to cinematic convention. O'Kelly exploits our shared fluency in Hollywood visual forms, harnessing in this opening scene our awareness of the establishing shot and the screen caption announcing place. He also understands the power of film editing. For instance, we are presented with two images, the hero's slyly phallic telescope trained on a whaling ship and poor pearl teething red round cheeks. These images are juxtaposed to demonstrate the tension between George's affinity with the sea and his love for his family. O'Kelly also references Irish literary tradition in this scene. The sound symbolism recalls the opening scene of Joyce's Ulysses, in which Stephen Dedalus walks along the Sandy Mount shore. Through his allusion to Stephen, O'Kelly recalls another unappreciated artist in crisis, hence Stephen's affinity with Kidd, and another young man torn between family and vocation, hence Stephen's affinity with George. While the film within the play elicits from Kidd a virtuoso performance, it is bookended by his failure in Hollywood and by Hollywood's failure of its audiences. In the opening scene of Catalpa, Kidd confesses, I come along all arrogance and boldly striking out, pioneering new horizons, taking the art of cinema to previously unscaled heights, Matthew Kidd, Oscar-winning screenwriter of Catalpa, the greatest movie never made. But as my brief summary reveals, Kidd's professional hubris isn't unfounded. His film would tidally suit any number of film genres. The big-budget historical epic, the underdog story in which ramshackle immigrants do battle against the evil empire, the love story that reaches across classes, and perhaps most obviously, the rousing maritime adventure film, a genre containing films from Errol Flynn's The Seahawk to Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. 
The devices O'Kelly poaches from commercial film, in tandem with the remarkable language of the play and an astounding performance, successfully lure the theater audience into Kidd's film, as the critical acclaim heaped on Catalpa testifies. However, theater business ultimately robs the play of the film's consolations of heroic achievement and domestic harmony. When Kidd's account of the Catalpa adventure comes to an end, the lighting alters and shifts the tension away from spirited performance to dreary bedsit, and the play ends with a slow fade to black. The film within the play celebrates individual accomplishment and collaboration. The performance confirms the power of language and individual imagination to create vivid images. But the final image of the play is silent and bleak and reminds the audience of the reality lurking behind the fictive consolations of Hollywood film. In addition to its critique of popular culture, Catalpa highlights the ways in which the events of Irish history dovetail neatly with Hollywood convention. In part, this convergence reflects claims scholars have long made about Irish historical events, such as the 1916 Easter Rising, being deliberately performative. Catalpa suggests a similar affinity between 19th century political events and 20th and 21st century commercial film. In particular, the play reveals that Irish nationalist discourse and classical Hollywood cinema both rehearse familiar tropes and invoke stereotypes to elicit a form of canned sentiment from their audiences. When George first meets John DeVoy, the real-life Finian leader who planned the Catalpa mission, the play's dialogue graphs poetry onto popular film, but it also links these high and low cultural forms to the romantic rhetoric of Irish nationalism. As the following excerpt illustrates, Devoy, Ten years ago, shimmer, shimmer, in the land of my birth, shimmer, shimmer, revolution, freedom, throw the yoke of oppression, shimmer, shimmer into flashback. Fighting Fenians wait for the word to rise up and strike the blow that'll break the grip of the Saxon knave. Even Irishmen in the British Army swear their allegiance to the secret Fenian army, the IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood, 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 sinister music to suit. High, wide-shot, cramped attic of Dublin pub, hunched backs and whispered sedition, Zoom down and in on the central bunch of six in British Army uniforms, Bibles in hand. I swear in the name of God, Cranston, Dara, Hassett, Hogan, Harrington, and Wilson, and in the name of dead generations, door bursts in, soldiers and polis they swarm, chaotic with panic and fear. Here, Devoy recounts the arrest of the Fremantle Six, the men whom George is charged to rescue. The shimmer shimmer of the sea describes not only the environment, but also the flickering visual effect that sometimes prefigures a flashback in film or television. When spoken by Devoy and woven into the Republican idiom wafting throughout this passage, the words shimmer shimmer also allude to the allure and dangers inherent in Republicanism. Despite the resilience of nationalist cliché, reflected in phrases like revolution freedom, Saxon knave, and dead generations, the ideals of republicanism, as we see from the compromise Finian values demonstrated throughout the mission, waver. These political ideals are a mirage, the text suggests, a fantasy or apparition shaped by memory, 
a point underscored by the fact that this is a flashback from DeVoy's point of view. The Shimmer Shimmer also suggests that national affiliation can blind individuals to the always changing nature of political rhetoric and commitments. Thus, the play allows for an interesting exploration of the revisionism that occurs when Irish national history meets Hollywood. The film Catalpa also heavily celebrates the value of male community, a theme that drives not only Irish republicanism, but also the genres of the heroic epic and the maritime film. In Kidd's film, George's commitment to his family is offered as the prime motivation for his willingness to lead the Fremantle rescue. Yet the bulk of the play film centers on his interchanges with other men, ranging from his wealthy father-in-law to the presumptuous Devoy, his lascivious cohort John Breslin, and the fanatic IRB member Duggan. In different ways, the sea journey and rescue regularly advance the familiar notion that social and political sentiment binds men in productive ways. George and his whaling shipmates suffer poignantly when they lose one of their crew to an accident. The loyal first mate, Smith, heroically defies captain's orders to rescue George and his cohorts when their return to the ship goes awry. George and Breslin reach detente despite their differing aims. This focus on masculinity is furthered by the one-man theatrical performance of Catalpa, which replicates the homosocial world of the naval adventure film. In these films, the majority, if not all, of the roles are performed by men, just as, in the one-man show of Catalpa, all of the roles are performed by one man. In both the film and the play, audiences are allowed the less familiar pleasure of watching men perform a wide range of intense emotions, as well as offering male bodies as a spectacle for display and consumption. But in its depiction of gender, Kidd's performance reveals some of the worst features of the Hollywood adventure film. Since the appearance of Laura Mulvey's essay, Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema, in 1975, critics have engaged with her influential claim regarding the male gaze, a point of view that denies women agency and relegates them to objects. Though Mulvey's assertions have been belabored, Kidd's account of the Fremantle rescue provides a textbook example of her thesis. In his film, the women are objects of erotic desire. Both Breslin and George yearn for Marie, the sexy French maid. They are victims. Greta, Pearl, Marie, and George's mother-in-law are all somehow betrayed by men. And they are disembodied moral arbiters. George's mother-in-law, Greta, and Marie loom literally as ghostly specters, chastising George for his commitment to the mission. Here, the invocation of Hollywood film reinforces the reductive stereotypes of women embedded in this historical narrative. The gender stereotypes in the film are exacerbated, I would argue, by the nature of the one or two person play. Interestingly, many contemporary Irish dramas about Hollywood are one or two person shows. Catalpa is a one man play, Belfast Blues is a one woman play, and Stones in His Pockets is a two person play. Performed with few or no costume, set, or property changes, these are talky productions that refuse the visual spectacle associated not only with commercial film, but also with strands of popular Irish theater from Busico to Riverdance. The spectacle in these productions arises from the ability of actors to adopt and dexterously perform 
a variety of roles in a single live performance. But even the most dazzling performances frequently reduce gender to mincing pantomime or burly exaggeration. However, in Catalpa and in Stones in His Pockets, which I'll discuss later, the exaggerated drag performance of femininity by a male actor further diminishes the already marginalized female characters. In his notes to the play, O'Kelly explains that he wanted to explore heroism through the story of the Fremantle mission, but to avoid what he described as Rambo-like storylines which infect human development in a very debilitating way. He posited that the obvious way to tell the story was to write a movie, but he concluded, a storyline like Catalpa would be a multi-million dollar blockbuster with all the conservative ramifications that entails. Making a clear distinction between art and commerce, O'Kelly chooses the form of the theatrical one-man show with its simple mise-en-scene to avoid the corrupting forces of Hollywood. But the play itself belies this reductive reasoning. In Catalpa, the generic character and visual conventions of the Hollywood film add emotion and depth to his play, as well as riveting the audience. The special effects of Catalpa are of the imagination, but its muse is clearly the blockbuster film. So the play offers a complex critique of Hollywood. It focuses on the failure of the Irish screenwriter, as well as the larger failure of the Hollywood system to recognize talent. But these disappointments are ultimately transcended by the virtuoso performance Kidd offers in the privacy of his bedsit. After his failure in Hollywood, Kidd can unfurl his imagination and unleash a totally compelling performance, shaped by his welding of evocative poetic language and his utter command of the visual and narrative tropes that drive the adventure film. As a result, Catalpa ultimately portrays Hollywood as the provocative and productive stimulus for better Irish art. The same mix of failure and promise characterizes another contemporary Irish play engaged with Hollywood, Martin McDonough's The Cripple of Inishman. Martin McDonough situates the story of his protagonist, Cripple Billy, within the filming of the 1934 documentary, Man of Aaron. The promised arrival of the American film director, Robert Flaherty, and his crew upends life in Inishman and stimulates in Cripple Billy the desire to become a film star. Ironically, life on this rural western island is powerfully informed by mass culture, even before Flaherty's appearance. Billy sits on the hedge bank and stares endlessly at the cows, as if he were enraptured by a film or television program. The elderly Kate and Eileen behave as Billy's pretend aunties, since they are, in fact, not related to him. Johnny Patin Mike behaves as if he were the Luella Parsons of Inishman, exchanging tidbits of gossip with a rapt audience for power and goods. And more generally, the community is characterized by the extreme, senseless violence of a Hollywood action film. But as Johnny Patin Mike reveals, the advent of the American Film Company promises to place those behaviors in their proper mass cultural context by offering to make film stars of whosoever should be chosen to take part in it and will take them back to Hollywood then and be giving them a life free of work, or anyways, only acting work, which couldn't be called work at all. It's only talking. Here, Hollywood promises the denizens of this impoverished community relief from the labors that consume their lives. A key term in most late 20th century explorations of Irish identity, 
authenticity is a particularly vexed topic in studies of McDonough and his creative work. The realistic sets and full casting of Cripple allow for an easier embrace of Irish authenticity. The play does not demand from its audience the imaginative leaps required by one or two-person plays, nor does it so aggressively remind audiences of the performer's role in creating these characters. Even so, the content of Cripple initially appears to suggest that essential national or ethnic identities are irrelevant. Despite the fact that Johnny insists success in Hollywood is predicated on good looks, Cripple Billy travels to Aaron in order to audition, and he is swept away to Hollywood by the director for a screen test to fill what the fisherman Babby Bobby imagines must be good parts in Hollywood films for Cripple fellas. When Billy soon after returns to Anishman, he explains that the filmmakers chose not to cast him and found instead a blonde lad from Fort Lauderdale to play the crippled Irishman, a part Billy was literally born to play. By divesting the Irish character of all but his race and gender, Hollywood highlights a brand of Irishness defined by whiteness, masculinity, and handicaps. McDonough depicts Hollywood as a meritocracy that values talent over essence. As the Yank director explained, ah, better to get a normal fella who can act cripple than a crippled fella who can't fecking act at all. A play about the movies, Cripple highlights the confusion between reality and reproduction, genuine and counterfeit, encouraged by theater and film. Ironically, Billy appears most authentically Irish when he is trapped alone, running his lines in a squalid hotel room in Hollywood. When he rehearses the script, he gives voice in a rich Irish peasant dialect to themes of mother love and oppression. A verse of the crappie boy in the film's dialogue allows him both to perform and to inhabit his actual homesickness, an instance that occurs notably when he is without an audience. Aidan Aerosmith reads this moment and Billy's subsequent rejection of Hollywood as a sign of what he describes as Billy's distaste for such a stereotyped representation. But Billy is more than just an enlightened Irishman rejecting immigrant nostalgia. The scripted grief expressed by Billy, a monologue that addresses imminent death and mourning for home and family, also allows him a space for real feeling. This interlude grants him permission to inhabit stereotypes that encapsulate and reflect his genuine emotional responses to the displacement and isolation engendered by immigration. The script affords Billy the legitimate opportunity to feel part of a larger community just as the shared rhetoric of religious ritual provides a feeling of community to its adherents. Billy wisely feels conflicted about the canned sentiment articulated by this film, but he nonetheless identifies, however briefly, with its content. Like Matthew Kidd and Catalpa, Billy finds a moment of transcendence thanks to his Hollywood-induced failure and isolation. These plays provide a provocative refutation of the collaborative nature of film and theater by suggesting that the artist produces his best work in isolation. Of course, the immediate contact with Hollywood enables each of these characters to give voice to his best work as screenwriter and screen actor, respectively. A site notorious for subordinating the vision of the artist to mass taste and commerce, Hollywood becomes a catalyst for their finest productions.
Though, of course, the greater irony is that each of these men languishes without an audience for his opus. In Cripple, McDonough ultimately advocates the salutary effects of Hollywood on Irish identity. Billy's excursion to Hollywood reveals to him that his character is not as fixed as he had imagined when living in Inishman. When he returns home, he tells Babby Bobby that his identity as the abandoned cripple boy almost drove him to suicide, but that his adventures in Hollywood proved to him that there are plenty around here just as crippled as me, only it isn't on the outside it shows. By the end of the play, the minor characters rest easy in the fact that Ireland mustn't be such a bad place, so, if the Yanks want to come to Ireland to do their filmmaking. And Cripple Billy gets the girl. The attractive, belligerent Helen, for whom he pines the entire play, finally agrees to a courtship, as long as it falls under cover of night, so as not to ruin her reputation. But unfortunately, at the play's conclusion, the myth Billy constructed about himself to find his way to Hollywood, that he was dying of tuberculosis, also turns out to be true. In the final scene, McDonough offers audiences the pathos of his protagonist's promised death. Nodding again to Hollywood narrative convention, McDonough models his conclusion after that of a weepy, even as he acknowledges his debt to the tradition of modern Irish drama. As with Christie in The Playboy of the Western World, the lead character's brush with celebrity is the very device that consolidates his actual and his performative identities. Billy has now literally become the tubercular victim he and Hollywood invented, just as Christie literally becomes the playboy he and his community together constructed in Singh's 1907 play. Even amidst the nihilistic violence that appears to captivate him, McDonough provides his audiences the heartwarming narrative of uplift found in popular film. In a recent essay, Laura Eldred notes the affinities between McDonough's work and late 20th century horror films. She identifies characteristics his plays share with the average slasher film, such as the expected violence, gore, pessimism, and camp, self-conscious humor and plots that seem to be more variations on a theme than individual and distinct texts. As she puts it, this violence, in my opinion, distracts us from the fact that McDonough is ultimately a profoundly nostalgic, deeply romantic playwright. Under the veneer of Cripple's overt brutality and human unkindness, McDonough provides and pleases his audiences with a syrupy illustration of a cohesive, empathetic Irish community and an immigrant narrative that allows for individual achievement, which comes in the late 20th century form of self-actualization. Mari Jones's Stones in His Pockets presents a plot arc fairly similar to the Cripple of Inishman. In this two-man play, a Hollywood film company descends on a contemporary small town in County Kerry to film a historical drama entitled The Quiet Valley, which centers on Irish dispossession. The play focuses on two extras in the film. Jake, who has recently returned to the small village after living in the States, and Charlie, who hopes to pawn his screenplay for an action film onto someone with the influence to produce it. The making of this film disrupts the community largely because it disturbs the polarities of truth and fiction, native and foreigner, authentic and imposter. As Charlie notes, half of America here is playing Irish people and they say I am the outsider. In this western village, 
Hollywood and film celebrity have infiltrated the ways of thinking. Characters understand the unfamiliar through celebrity touchstones. Twelve-year-olds are inspired by film to immigrate to America to become like Macaulay What's-His-Name. And all normal children, according to Brother Gerard, imagine they will grow up to become rock stars, film stars, footballers. Everyone wants an audience. These Irish villagers also recognize the cultural capital earned through celebrity, or contact with celebrity. When the American film star Caroline Giovanni flirts with Jake, Charlie warns him to be careful of the tabloid gossip that might follow. You know, Extra gives movie star one in a caravan. No, like your man, Hugh Grant, and the prostitute. Jake replies, made her famous, didn't it? Though this makes one wonder how many, a decade or so later, recall the name of Divine Brown. Finding himself in the midst of Hollywood surreality, Jake's drug-addicted second cousin, Sean Harkin, kills himself in the middle of filming. In part, Jake blames himself. He fears that Sean concluded from Jake's failed ventures in New York that there was no American dream. Another character, Finn, claims that Sean killed himself because he found himself, as he says, right in the middle of the world he fantasized about. You know, the beautiful American star, the movies. In reality, the Hollywood fantasy failed to transform Sean and his Irish community from nothing to somebody. Turning briefly from its insistent comedy, the play lights on the tragedy of filling Sean's head with delusions of fame and of reducing the elderly Mickey's whole way of life to merely a backdrop for an American movie. Yet despite this hint of skepticism about the Hollywood happy ending, Charlie holds tight to the fantasy that talent wins through in the end. And Jake intends to transform Sean's story into a movie in which, as he says, the stars become the extras and the extras become the stars, so it becomes Sean's story and Mickey and all the people of this town. The men still search for comic resolution and intend to sell out their cousin's suffering to make a successful film that they believe more accurately reflects the contradictions of contemporary rural Ireland. In this comedy, Caroline Giovanni is a true Hollywood celebrity. She's an American actress who, like the real-life Julia Roberts in the films Michael Collins and Mary Riley, struggles with her Irish accent. Countered against this young American beauty is Mickey, an aged villager who has built his life around his work years ago as an extra in The Quiet Man. But the dreams of Charlie and Jake are predicated on their lack of celebrity. As Jake says, we have nothing to lose, no money, no reputation, no assets. Under the radar of film celebrity, there rests real hope for risk-taking and for creativity. Though she celebrates the promise of Hollywood and mass audiences, Jones remains equivocal about that success. But that equivocation points to the potential triumph of these two Irishmen. When Jake tells Charlie he is full of shit for holding fantasies about his script, it becomes the ultimate compliment because he mimics Caroline's language. Though the mincing stage performance of Caroline drains her character of the potential to be much more than a signpost for formulaic Hollywood femininity. Nonetheless, Jake and Charlie's mimicry of the American star's language suggests their own potential achievement in Hollywood, which Caroline describes as a crock of shit. 
Even the final shot of the imagined film ends on a big mound of steaming cowclap. Ireland through the lens of Hollywood might be shit, but it sells. In The Girls in the Big Picture, a play authored by Mari Jones in collaboration with other members of the Charabon Theatre Company, Hollywood plays a less central but still important role in the depiction of rural life in Northern Ireland. This play focuses on Irish consumers for classical film, rather than on those who hope to make these films. Set in the 1960s, this play chronicles the lives of three 30-something unmarried women in a small farming town. Their trips to the cinema do not provide a form of release, but underscore the deprivations they suffer because of their position as spinsters in the stultifying social climate of their town. In one early scene, the women attend the screening of a weepy in which the heroine is falsely accused of betraying her lover, then struck by a car. When her lover discovers his tragic mistake, he wakes her from her coma like sleeping beauty from a kiss, and the film culminates in their reconciliation and engagement. Yet in this play, the film's fantasy falls flat. While watching the movie, the women are plagued by derisive comments from a group of young men in the audience who mock their weight, their marital status, and their lack of sexual appeal. Like McDonough's Cripple, the Girls in the Big Picture shows us an Irish film audience that engages the screen and their fellow audience members directly, behaving more like 19th century audiences for the melodrama than 20th century audiences of classical narrative film. Though their action unfurls in the 20th century, The Cripple of Inishman, Stones in His Pockets, and The Girls in the Big Picture are all set in sites that resemble the Hollywood fantasy of a bucolic Ireland uncontaminated by the ills of cosmopolitan modernity. Cripple unfolds on Inishman among the Aran Islands off the coast of Galway. Stones in his pockets, as the play notes, in a scenic spot near a small village in County Kerry, and girls in a rural Northern Ireland farming town. In each play, the appearance of American film, or the industry that produces it, troubles the routines of the community, but never radically. There are, at best, intimations that this encounter with global mass media might be transformative, though more frequently, the plays suggest that life will proceed as usual once the screen grows dark or the film crew leaves. Frequently, these plays about Hollywood not only suggest that the Irish may soon mine their own backyards for cinematic profit, but also insinuate that contemporary Irish playwrights have joined a long tradition of American film directors, from John Ford to Ron Howard, who seek global audiences by pandering to familiar notions of Irishness in order to sell their product. Many of the characters in these Hollywood plays are marked by what the film critic Dudley Andrew labels demi-immigration, a term that describes the routine dislocation in which Irish filmmakers and performers, as he describes it, entered the orbit of the Hollywood marketplace in the satellite London exchange. Relieved of the sharp break and permanent dislocation that characterized Irish immigration in earlier centuries, these characters move comfortably and intermittently between Ireland and elsewhere, a state of impermanent artistic exile Dermot Bolger has described as a style of commuter culture. The playwrights under discussion have themselves experienced a similar form of demi-immigration, and in their plays, the routine dislocation of the characters is marked not only by their traverse between America and Ireland, 
but also by circumstance. All or some portion of each unfolds in temporary shelter. A bed sit, a whaling ship, a film trailer, hotel rooms in Ireland and abroad, a home soon to be evacuated for a job or a marriage or the grave. As suggested by these sites, there is a fundamental lack of rootedness in these plays, but one rendered at times nostalgic since, at least in both Cripple and Stones, the commuting characters return to Ireland's west. As the famous Hollywood icon Dorothy from MGM's Wizard of Oz confirms, there's no place like home. These plays also stage in Ireland untouched by the wealth of the Celtic Tiger or by recent Northern Irish affluence. In Catalpa, Cripple, and Stones, the central characters eagerly, sometimes desperately, seek the fortune promised by success in Hollywood. In his imaginary revision of his meeting with the producers, Kidd beseeches, buy my screenplay, give me the cash, and shoot the movie to make all of our dreams come true. In Cripple, Johnny Patine Mike depicts the filming of Man of Aaron strictly in terms of the wealth of its participants. Flaherty is one of the most famous and richest Yanks there is, whose film will cost over a million dollars. And Johnny marvels that Coleman King, the native lead of the film, will make a hundred dollars a week, despite being, as he describes, ugly as a brick of baked shite. In Stones, the extras sneak food from craft services to feed their families while Charlie laments the loss of his video shop that went bust, and Jake announces his distaste for outsiders coming in and taking jobs. Each play turns on the depiction of an Irish poverty that might be corrected by American affluence, a dynamic arguably less relevant in the aftermath of the Celtic Tiger and in light of the falling dollar. The relationship between Irish poverty and American affluence comes to light in another contemporary drama focused on Hollywood, Belfast Blues, which transfers a concern with celebrity in general and Hollywood more particularly to war-torn Belfast of the 1970s and 80s. This one-woman show, written and performed by Geraldine Hughes, stages her coming of age in Divis Flats, a site of alcoholism and drug use, poverty and sectarian violence. The early turning point of this autobiographical drama is the moment when Hughes, at age 13, is chosen from among 2,500 other Irish girls to star in the 1984 made-for-television movie about the Troubles, The Children in the Crossfire. The American director selects Hughes for her poignant description of her alcoholic da's illness and its effects on the family. This child's dramatic depiction of her suffering becomes the device that allows her to escape Northern Ireland. In this docudrama, Hughes' celebrity as a child offers little upon her return to Belfast, other than torment from her fellow schoolmates. But she maintains contact with George, the American director of the film. George offers to pay her college tuition, and Hughes describes her escape from Belfast to attend UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television. In Hollywood, she found safety and success. Unlike Catalpa, Cripple, Stones in His Pockets, or The Girls in the Big Picture, Belfast Blues maintains an unequivocally rosy attitude towards Hollywood and celebrity. The nuns at Hughes' parochial school seem completely unfazed by offering their pupils up to the American Film Company. 
These girls are simply urged to behave themselves since they reflect on the school and on Catholicism more generally. Similarly, Hughes's parents are represented as entirely comfortable with sending their 13-year-old daughter to Hollywood. When the film airs, they proudly screen the videotape for friends, but largely understand Hughes's success as financial gain, one that quickly dries up in the rough poverty of Catholic Belfast. Hughes herself presents Hollywood and celebrity as her salvation. This is a textbook rag-to-riches story, patterned both on the triumphalism of popular 19th-century immigrant tales and on the American dream narratives that color so many Hollywood films. She seems to have internalized this logic and happily capitalizes on the public fervor for the story of a wee girl who, through the munificence of American television, survives and even thrives amid the troubles. With the exception of the girls in the big picture, the main characters of these plays are on a quest for the affluence and renown that they presume Hollywood can offer. They seek an escape from the penury of Ireland and Northern Ireland, as well as larger audiences for their art. On the surface, we see Hollywood thwarting or perverting the ambitions of these Irish characters. Yet in each play, failure in Hollywood serves ultimately as a catalyst for some positive development. In Catalpa, Kidd can now adeptly perform and completely control his glorious account of the Fremantle mission. In Cripple, Billy can finally embrace identity and community, despite their frailties and failures. In Stones, Jake and Charlie are inspired to rewrite their history and the history of the community. In Belfast Blues, Hughes escapes the violent, sordid conditions of her Belfast youth. These plays do not purvey the unremittingly dark critique of Hollywood found in the work of authors from Nathaniel West and Bruce Wagner to David Mamet and David Rabe. Cross-cultural fertilizations of Irish and American, high and low cultures, anonymity and celebrity allow the central characters a more authentic and sometimes more fulfilling existence. The Irish, it appears, can distill from mass culture its elusive promise. Even so, each play holds tight to literary tradition, and a particularly Irish literary tradition, which it then runs through the mill of Hollywood generic, narrative, and cinematic conventions. Whether understood as film or play, Catalpa is an epic, a work driven, according to O'Kelly, by the question, what is a hero? The social determinism and pessimism of The Cripple of Inishman finds its precedence in the film work of Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino, two directors to whom McDonough acknowledges a debt, but it also clearly engages with literary naturalism. Both Stones in His Pockets and The Girls in the Big Picture point to the rural realism of Irish drama. In Belfast Blues, nods to O'Casey's tenement dramas, even as it employs documentary images and television footage to lure audiences into its world. Like Belfast Blues, Darren Thornton's Wonderkin embraces multimedia spectacle in its depiction of a young Irish director, Sean Quinn, who explains the process of making his first feature, which has been acquired and re-edited by Hollywood producers eager to transform the film into a fast-paced crowd-pleaser. Another one-man play about Irish auteurs in Hollywood, Wonderkin unfolds as Sean awaits the final product of his film alone in a London hotel room. In their plays about Hollywood, Donal O'Kelly, Martin McDonough, 
Mari Jones, Geraldine Hughes, and Darren Thornton capitalize on a widespread familiarity with the formal and thematic norms of commercial American cinema for a variety of reasons. To bridge the divide between high and low cultures, to critique and to celebrate the effects of mass culture on Ireland and Irish identity, to reframe our understanding of spectacle, and to recalibrate established literary tradition. Though these plays offer strong rebukes to Hollywood for its avarice, its arrogance, and its inability to recognize Irish talent, they ultimately advocate for the positive influence of American commercial film on contemporary Irish drama. By reworking narrative and formal conventions derived from Hollywood films, these contemporary Irish and Northern Irish plays demonstrate a productive relationship between high culture and mass culture. The widespread popularity of these productions suggests that they successfully provide audiences an experience that holds the broad appeal of commercial cinema, even as they confirm the unique attributes of live theater. You've been listening to Paige Reynolds in a University College Dublin scholar cast in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance. A transcript of this lecture can be found at www.ucd.ie forward slash scholarcast. <laughs>